Hey everybody, I am Dr. Andy Rourke, and this is the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast. Hey, speaking of Uncharted, Uncharted Staff Drama Conference registration is closing in 30 days. That's right, in 30 days, you're not getting in. It is locked up. It is totally secured. It is absolutely 100% you-proof in 30 days. I don't want that to happen, and you don't want that to happen. If you're not familiar with Uncharted's conferences, guys, they are magical. They are unlike anything else. We have got workshops. Think about workshops. They're going to have less than 20 people in them. We're going to have our own choose-your-own-adventure sessions, which means if you come to the conference and there's something that you're really struggling with and there's not a workshop on it, you can propose that, and if other people are pumped about it, we will make it happen on the spot. That's right. We will make it up for you just so it is as customized as it can possibly be. Nobody else is even going to try that. We did it back in April and people loved it and we're going to do it again and it's going to be really special. So do not miss out. If you want to talk about HR, if you want to talk about career development for your staff, if you want to talk about compensation, if you want to talk about conflict management, if you want to work out the front versus the back drama, if you want to talk about better communication, you want to talk about employee engagement, if you're going to talk about people who are going to come in, take responsibility for what they're doing, people are going to come in and feel ownership of the practice and solve problems on their own. Guys, all that falls under staff drama. If you are a rock star and you are running the biggest, most wonderful practice in the tri-state area, Uncharted has got tons of stuff for you. You are going to meet people who are doing things at an equally high level to you. If you are like, oh crap, it is a complete disaster zone in my practice right now. I just bought this practice. I don't know how to fix it. You come on. You're going to meet the most compassionate, generous, people that you will ever meet and we are going to get your back and we will jump in and not only will we work on the conference we will work after the conference because you'll be in the online community and we will stay with you and hold your hand and walk you forward it is a game changer i can't overstate that so august 21st through 24th kansas city see you there don't miss this opportunity registration closing soon go to unchartedvet.com to get registered. Now, let's get into this episode. And now, the Uncharted Podcast. (laughs) And we're back. It's me and my colleague, my cohort, my soulmate, my sister, (laughs) another mister. Stephanie, how to save a life, Goss. Oh, how's it going, Andy? It's good. It's really good. The summer is rolling along. The kids are settling into camps. There's a little bit less structure. You know, we're not racing quite as fast in the morning to get out the door. Nice. Sun's staying up late, so we're walking the dog later in the evening. You know, it's kind of summer living. How about you? Yeah, pretty much the same around here. The kids are getting ready to head off to their grandparents for a couple weeks. So there's lots of nerves as they start camp this week for the week before they go. But um, yeah, things are, things are good. Things are yeah. good. The camp, clinic's busy. Camp, camp grandparents is a great thing. Clinic camp. is busy. <laughs> yeah. Is it's, busy. Not, it's nuts. It's nuts right now. And it's, it's interesting to me because I've, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of my manager groups, it's either everybody is, there's a calm before the storm, I think, before summer starts for people, or it just straight out the gate. It's nuts, and everybody has already hit midsummer season, and it is it is just crazy. So, 
I wonder if it's kind of rolling geographic. Like, I wonder if it rolls north because I'm in South Carolina. It's summer. You know, it's it's going to it's going to hit 90 degrees today. Uh, the schools have been out for a while. Like, yeah, it's it's we have already kind of shot through so the spring into into summer. unpleasantness of, of human summer. But I wonder, yeah. you know, people up north are just, you know, just starting to crack into the 70s. And I wonder if I wonder if I wonder if the traffic to the clinic uh, relates to that in some way. Maybe. Maybe. Well, what what uh what do we got to talk about today? I'm pretty excited about what's on the agenda. Yeah, you want to talk about the big I guess it's 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 been the big thing in my life recently. Um I think I think it's been the big thing for our whole our whole team the 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 tiny crew of the SS Uncharted has been uh, <laughs> that is been, a hashtag we've truth. It. We've been in it. Yeah, so. I'm I'm super excited to hear um the backstory to this because I know a little bit about how this came to be, but but I'm excited. But before we get started, I think um we want to share some information with our listeners for today, yeah. right? Yeah, let's go ahead and do this. So, guys, uh, what I'm talking about is uh, a suicide prevention initiative that uh, that my team and I have really been pushing for their, uh, we, we launched it, uh, almost two weeks ago, right? Yeah, exactly two weeks ago from the day this podcast comes out. And, um, and it's been a pretty big deal for us. So let's just go ahead. Uh, Steph and I are going to talk about it. And one thing I just want to be straight up front and candid. Um, we're, we're going to talk about suicide and that can be very triggering for people. And I fully understand that. Um, if this is not a subject that you are, um, that you're up for, uh, please, uh, please maybe pass on the episode or, um, or, 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 or take it easy. We are going to talk about uh, suicide and suicide methods. If you are having any thoughts of suicide, please, please, please text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor. Do it, do it right away. Or you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-8255. And again, if you're having any thoughts of suicide, you are too important. You matter. Everyone in vet medicine feels like they're alone, but they're not alone, and you're not alone. So reach out, okay? If the topic of suicide is a potential trigger for those struggling with feelings of guilt or loss after the loss of a friend, and that is something that we do come, ac- come across. Guys, the guilt um, or, or the pain after the loss of a friend is very, very real. If you're experiencing these emotions, please reach out for support. Uh, they, there are other... Uh, other resources that are available specifically the uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has a suite of resources that's afsp.org all right so with that said let's go ahead let's talk about let's talk about four eyes save lives and what that means yeah so i would love to know a little bit about this hashtag four eyes save lives what are you asking people to do so here's the here's the thing. Four eyes save lives. What I'm asking people to do is we need to make a change. And, and I'm talking about a voluntary change. This is something that needs to work in practices where it can work. But I think that's the vast majority of practices. And I think it's a growing, it's a big percentage and a growing percentage of practices where this can absolutely work. I think we need to make it so that it takes two people to get to lethal medications. So lethal drugs drugs that could be used uh, for suicide. People should not be able to get to them alone. That does not mean that it should take a long time to get them. I think that we can make this very fast. I think there's lots of systems that work. In human medicine, this has already happened. There is no one getting to opioids by themselves in the human hospitals. It's not happening. 
And so we need to follow suit. They're, they're, I mean, I, I've, got, I've got practices that we work with through Uncharted that are using very inexpensive rudimentary systems that absolutely work all the way up to the really swanky systems that, that you would find in a human hospital. There's mm-hmm. a huge number of ways to do this. No one should be able to get to lethal drugs by themselves. And that's why we say four eyes save lives. It takes two people to access drugs that people use um, to become addicted to opioids, and, and all, which, is, which is, in my mind, suicide in slow motion, and then, um, and then to, to actively take their lives. And so that's what I'm asking people to do. So four eyes save lives seems pretty simple to me. I mean, all, all you're asking is that there be two people to access the the drugs that could be used to end somebody's life. So, walk me through the rationale for that, because right, cool. what what why what about that makes sense to you? Like, how did how did that come about? So, so there's two ways for me to walk it through, and one is the formal case that I make. If you're interested in this, uh, check out drandywork.com, and in the upper right side of the of the web page, you'll see a big button that said that links to the article that that we published. And it's called What Do We Do About Suicide? It's time to limit access to means. So you can you can read the sort of the formal argument I make there. And so I can make that argument. And then I can also make the one that that really hits in my mind. Let, let me make let me make sort of the formal argument first. So let me just lay this down. So okay. here's here's what we're looking at when we look at suicide in veterinary medicine. We are at epidemic proportions. Like we have a massive problem with suicide among veterinarians and among veterinary staff. And the vet staff is not nearly as researched to this as the veterinarians. I don't think that's being broken out, but I think we have a huge problem in our support staff and it's dangerously underreported and studied. And so I, I lump them absolutely into everything that we're talking about. The research is more with the veterinarians. Here's what we're looking at, guys. So according to the, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, male veterinarians are 2.1 times as likely to take their own life as the general population, and female veterinarians are 3.5 times as likely. So massive, massive different from the general population. We've got this crazy gender switch in vet medicine because in the general population, Men are more likely to take their lives by suicide than women. We are wildly flipped here. Women are much more likely. And the other part is our profession is, it's a female profession and it's growing. It's going to be more female. So when you look at veterinarians, we are 60% women and uh, the vet schools are 80% women. So we are still steadily going in that direction, which means this is a huge problem. And based on the numbers, we're heading for it to get worse, not, not better. Right. And so that that's kind of where we are, right? And we know we know a lot about why suicide happens. So we start really digging into the causes, and it's things like um, it's student debt is up there, it's poor work life balance, it's poor pay for the jobs, right? It's um, it's compassion fatigue, it's long work hours or work overload or stress. And for some people, it may be dealing with with euthanasia or, or all of these types of things. And then we've got all the stuff of the general population as well, of you know, home problems, things, things like that. So there's a, a smorgasbord of underlying problems. And I think a lot of us, and this is a lot of work we do with Uncharted, and a lot of work we do at the Dr. Andy Rourke site. It's a lot of stuff that AHA does and AVMA does, and I and I I I encourage those guys to keep it up, and, and I want to applaud them for what they do. Um, the Venn Foundation does great work. Uh, Not One More Vet. we got all of these groups that are really throwing down and just trying to fight the fight, but it's mm-hmm. so multifactorial 
in it, in its causes. It's it's just it's very difficult. And at the same time that we're fighting these fights, we are losing our colleagues at an alarming, uh, distressing, unacceptably high rate. And so, yeah. so, so we're so that's where we are. It it's time to sort of think about actions and where do we go. And so, where do we go? And I think that there's some things we kind of have to understand about suicide before we uh, before we lay the plot. When we start looking at at at, at suicide and, and 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 why people do it and how they do it, I think one of the things that people imagine a lot is that the majority, the vast majority of people who who take their life by suicide, that they have a long-term plan and this is a long-term decision. And those mm-hmm. people do exist and that does happen, but that's not as common as people think. Mm-hmm. When we look at the research and we, there's a 2016 study that, that, that came out and they looked at, uh, they interviewed people who were suicide survivors. And what they found was that two thirds of the people who attempted to take their lives ha- made the decision within an hour of making the attempt. Mm-hmm. And then when you go farther down, 48% of the people who uh, decided to, to take their life, they did it within 10 minutes. And so we're talking half the time they, they, they make a decision and they go for it. And, and don't get me wrong. I don't think this is like happy-go-lucky people who are not having a care in the world and they make the decision. I think this is the, this is the ultimate decision from, from a path that, that they've been on. But sure. when it comes time, people make the decision and then they and then they go for it, and so this is a much more impulsive decision, the final decision, much more impulsive, impulsive than people tend to think, and so we start thinking about when these decisions happen and where they happen. And my my thought has always been, and, and this I, let me just say that I don't have any research to back this up. This is purely my own my own anecdotal experience. You know, I think about when I have felt the worst as a veterinarian and when I tend to be really down and just and just feel very depressed. And for me, it's the end of the day. And there's specific instances where it's like it's the end of the day and everybody else has gone home and I've got a big pile of medical records I have to finish. And I haven't eaten anything since lunch mm-hmm. and I'm tired. And those are both big triggers for me to really feel uh, you know, pessimistic about the world. And so, so I'm feeling that way and I, and I probably just got chewed out on a phone call at the end of the day mm-hmm. and there's that, that darkness. And then you, that's, that's when I, when I personally have felt the worst as a veterinarian, let me just say right here, guys, I, I am not, I am people, always, people will ask whenever we start talking about mental health or suicide, people always ask, Andy, are you, are you okay? Or, or, you know, are the caregivers okay? A hundred percent. I do not have suicidal ideation. I, I, this is not, um, this is not anything about me. But but I'm just being very transparent, honest about mm-hmm. about how I felt at different times in my career and, and what I've seen. And so I start thinking about that. If veterinarians or veterinary technicians are having these experiences and then they decide to end their life, our lethal medications are right there. I mean, mm-hmm. they are just sitting right there. Every mm-hmm. clinic I've ever worked at, I as a veterinarian could go and get those medications within a matter of moments. And, and that's by design. We make it so that we can quickly get to these things. Mm-hmm. I could get there. There's no one else in the building. You know, I, I, that, and that's, that's often the means that we see. When we start looking at, at how veterinarians, and again, the research here is just in veterinarians, um, but how they take their lives. You know, two-thirds of female veterinarians are using pharmaceutical poisoning. Right? Mm-hmm. This is this is a massive, massive piece of, of, of how these things get done. And so I think that we end up feeling, I, I think we end up feeling awful. Um, and, and often when the clinic is closed or when we're alone or it's shutting down and people make these decisions and they make them very quickly. 
and then they um, carry out this act. Mm-hmm. And so that that's really the rationale when you start looking at that and saying, we are fighting the fight to address underlying causes. What if there's a place that we can intervene and break this break this break this cycle Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i think the easiest thing is if this is an impulsive decision for a lot of people and if the research suggests that a lot of people won't make second attempts you know or that this is a passing a a passing decision again that's not everybody it's it's definitely not everybody but there's a significant percentage of people who go to this sort of dark place and if we can get them through it we have a better chance to intervene right we can help these people or they can help themselves so one time I was at a, I was at a vet conference, it was a big vet conference, and this female veterinarian comes up to me, and she says, I just want you to know um, that you saved, uh, you saved my life, is what she said. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And she said, she was very candid, and she said, you know, I decided to take, take my own life. And I went to sit down, and I was at the vet clinic, and I went to sit down to write the, the suicide note. And when I opened up the computer, there was a website, uh, your website was up and there was an article on mental health. And I decided just to kind of read through it. It was about burnout and she decided to read through it. And then when she was done, she decided that maybe she would think on this a little bit more. And ultimately she decided that she would go to go into therapy and she was doing very well. And that had been a long time. And I cried. Um, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was, that was, um, unexpected and it was meaningful. But to me, it's always, that story has always stuck with me as a, as an example of like, Man, if sometimes if we can just trip people up, even mm-hmm. just 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 for a little bit, just for a couple of hours, just for a day, how many of them wake up the next morning and go, "Oh my God, I was really in a bad place yesterday. I I need to say something, or I'm gonna I'm gonna tell my spouse, or I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna or I'm gonna go get go get help." I th- there's a some percentage. I don't I don't know what that percentage is, but it's some percentage. Mm-hmm. And you know, even if it's a small percentage, that that percentage still matters. And and we can help those people. And so anyway, that's the long way around to we we need to make it so that when people impulsively decide that they want to take their life, um, I, I think that the medications in the vet clinic are commonly available and that people go straight for them. I, I think we need to, to, to try to trip those things up. And mm-hmm. we can't. We don't know what's going on in the mind of our coworkers, right? We don't know what's going on in the mind of our colleagues. Smiling faces are not always happy places. Um, and so that that's just, yeah, I, I think that we need to start stepping up as a profession and, and taking away the number one most common way that veterinarians take their life. And that's, that's pharmaceutical poison. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes total sense to me just um, from a, from a being in the clinic perspective, when you and I first started talking about this and you, you asked me a, a question about, um, you know, c- who, who in the clinic could access the drugs. Right. And I think that that was part of your process with putting together this article. You, you asked out outwardly to our veterinary community, right. About being able to access drugs in the clinic. Yeah, that was part of the, that was part of the process. So I, so I, I laid out in my mind, I laid out the story that, that I told you, mm-hmm. um, how, how I re- how I really got into this. So there's two ways for me to tell a story. Let me tell you the other, the other side of the story is this, um, I am tired of my colleagues dying. Um, I am tired of it. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, I, I just, I just feel like every day we are yeah. losing a technician or a doctor to suicide in our profession. Well, and I think, I think even just this last two weeks uh, since we published the article, I have seen three stories yeah. in my groups of veterinarians at, at people's practices taking their lives. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Oh, it's, right? it's, 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 yeah, it's deeply disturbing. And so I, um, so I, I kind of reached that point. Uh, something, something happened. One of my one of my dear friends uh, lost a veteran that she worked with, and she was so upset. And it's one of those things where you're just you're just thinking. And I and I I kind of thought I thought why does this happen? And you know, for years people have asked. Whenever they they realize that the the rate of of suicide and mental illness, or especially suicide, is is so high for veterinarians, they will ask and say, Andy, why does this happen? So people outside the industry. And I'll, I'll always answer the question the same way. So, so what I'll do is I'll kind of list some of the underlying causes. I'll say, oh, you know, there's, you know, there's financial problems and there's not a lot of money in vet medicine and student debt is high and, and, and it's really hard to leave work at work. And there's a lot of compassion fatigue. You know, these are hard emotional decisions and positions that we work, that we work through. And I said, and I always, that's always the first part. And the second part is always, and, you know, veterinarians have access to, a, a way to to do this painlessly and and very effectively that they're comfortable with, mm-hmm. and that's what I always said. And so when I laid that down, I'm I'm giving you two factors. Number one is underlying uh, stressors, and then number mm-hmm. two is we have a, a means. And so I'm sitting there and I'm rolling these things around, and I go, "We are working hard on the underlying stressors. We have to continue to work on them." But there's this whole other piece, and that's the underlying means. What if what if we what if we took that away? And the idea that was in my mind was like, what's another, what's another thing? What's another scenario where we have something that people need to get to quickly and they can, as long as there's two people. And Mm -hmm. I started thinking about, um, honestly, like the missile launch systems in a submarine where, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, I mean, and it's crazy. And I don't even know that's true anymore, but I, this is like cold war, 1980s childhood, (laughs) Andy, there's a submarine and they have a missile launch system and they can totally launch those missiles very fast, but there's two people that have to be on other opposite sides of the rooms to turn the key, and then it's done. So it's very fast, but it takes two people. Mm-hmm. And and that's what stuck in my head. And then I just started talking to people, and I, I actually have somebody who are engineers, and I asked them, how would you fix this problem, or how would you solve this problem? And that's where the RFID um, idea came up as far as using, you know, fob locks. And and we just unlocked this, this it was this, this really rich problem-solving exercise of, I want to make something that's fast that works in my clinic, but it takes two people to access these drugs. And there's a, there's endless ways to do this, guys, and you can totally set it up in, in a way that's going to work with your people um, in most scenarios. And that just became this this great problem solving idea. And then I started asking people, you know, hey, do you do anything like this? What do you think about this? And so anyway, that that sort of that sort of emotionally how I came to this. And then the research that I laid out at the beginning that all came second separate because I I had to go in. I wanted to see if there was anything to this. And so the research that I sort of share in the article and I shared just a moment ago, that was me doing my own research to, to see if this, if there was something to what I was kind of thinking. And of course there's other restricting access to means for suicide is not a new idea. I'm not trying to say that this mm-hmm. is I created, right? but it came to that point and we start looking at other industries. We really have a very specific industry. I think where we can do a lot of good restricting means mm-hmm. just because of, the frequency with which people use lethal drugs or, or use things from the practice. So that's mm-hmm. it. So, so I wanted to further flesh that out. And the, and the holes in my idea are maybe I'm the only one who feels awful 
when I'm in the clinic by myself at night. You know, maybe this is not a shared experience. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm abnormal there. And, and the other one was maybe I'm the only one who's actually able just to walk in and, and grab the drugs, you know, like right. maybe, maybe that's not the norm. Maybe it's just in my career I've been, even though I've worked at fantastic practices, maybe I'm the only one that that's been the case. So we put out a survey to the Dr. Andy Rourke webpage and s- stuff. We, we hit publish and I thought, man, I hope people will actually take this. I hope, I hope enough people take it that we can get some, some, some useful information. Mm-hmm. And you could see the counter on the number of people who had taken the survey and it was just jumping up. You know, yeah. I mean, it was every, I mean, it was just every second it would go up two or three and we had 8,500 people responded in, in 48 hours. And it was just, it was incredible. So a really short survey. Essentially it was, are you actively in practice? Cause we wanted mm-hmm. to exclude people who are good people want to help, but they're not in practice. So, mm-hmm. so are you in practice? First question. The second one was, what's your role? And that was just to understand, are you a veterinarian? Are you front desk? Are you manager? Mm-hmm. Are you kennel? Um, are you, and I lumped the techs and the assistants together and, and I'm, Maybe I should have split them apart, but I, but I put them together. Um, and then I just said other. And so that's what, what's your role in the click. And then there's really only two questions after that. It was, if you have felt depressed or deeply sad in the last 12 months, when were you most likely to feel that way? And it was first thing in the morning before work, you know, at the beginning of my shift, during the workday, at the end of my shift, uh, before going home, at home at night or on my days off. Mm-hmm. And the other question was, if you were alone in the practice, could you access the controlled drugs? Assume that there are no rules or laws prohibiting this. And so I was a little bit surprised. I thought the end of the workday would be when people really said that they would feel down. That wasn't the case. What we really found was it's a home in the evening, which mm-hmm. I don't think, un- I, I think the scenario is the same. It's the same time as there's nobody at the clinic mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, I still think people probably start to feel, feel this way as they're, as they're sort of leaving the clinic. But uh, mm-hmm. At home in the evenings and honestly in the morning before work were the two times that people really said they were most likely to feel down. And so I would say both of those cases are generally when there's not people at the practice and, um, and so accessing drugs may be possible. And the second question was, could you access the controlled drugs if you were alone? And we had 71% of the people who took the survey said that they could. And so that's 92% of veterinarians. It's uh, 75% of managers. It's uh, 64%, I think, of technicians and front desk staff. And mm-hmm. uh, 38%, sorry, it's, what did I say? 64% of technicians and assistants is what I meant. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. 38% of front desk staff and then 25% of the kennel staff. That's 25% of the kennel staff says that they could get the controlled drugs. And wow. I don't think that those, no, I think those numbers, they feel right to me when I think, mm-hmm. I go, wow, that's high. And, and these, you know, these are just the numbers from our, from our survey, but they seem about right to me. And I'll tell you that, uh, last week I had a veterinarian come up to me and he said, oh, you know, thanks a lot for, for doing this stuff with suicide. Um, he said, you know, I, I and I, I, we started sort of talking and I said, man, every place I've worked, you know, I could just get the medications. And I said, every place that I've worked has got, um, has got a secret key. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's, there's that, there's that yeah. stash key. It's like, everybody's got it. And he kind of laughed and he said, I have a secret key. <laughs> Everybody knows where it is. <laughs> and it's like, he hangs it on the hook that he hangs his white coat on. So he's like, it's right. secret because it's when I hang it. up my white coat, you can't see it. And I'm like, that's, not secret at all. 
But oh and he was, I mean, he's very bashful and he was wonderful. And, and, and he was, he was in the process of making a change. He was like, I heard it. I see it. I'm making a change. And, but I don't think he's abnormal is my point. No. I think a lot of clinics have, are, are that way. Well, that's so, why, that's why I'm laughing because I think at, at almost every clinic that I've been in, there's been a secret key. Right. And that's, that's the really, the sad part about it. And I think you have to laugh because it, because otherwise it it makes me want to cry is that everybody knows where it lives and you're on the honor system that you're not going to go and get it but the numbers are clearly proving that people are going and getting the key and so I think that's that's part of what stuck out to me when we first started talking about this is that we all know that this is a problem and I think no one has really acknowledged it to this point well, At least not that I've seen. Right. No, I agree. It, I uh, that was kind of the the aha moment. It's it's one of those things where once you see it, you cannot unsee it. You go, this is obvious. And and it's funny because I think that we filed away in our brains as as veterinarians or managers, like filed it away. It's like my drugs are secure, mm-hmm. and it's like your drugs are probably secure, like most people's. Your drugs are secure if the person taking the drugs does not want to get caught the next day or, you know, when the tallies come up short, when we audit, right. Then your drugs are secure. But if you're dealing with someone who does not care about quote unquote getting caught, then your drugs are not secure. And that's the disconnect, right? You're like, Oh, I have a camera so I can see who goes in there. This is a person who does not care about being seen on the camera the next morning. Like that is not a deterrent for, for this person. And mm-hmm. so once you see that, you cannot unsee it. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I've just, I can't tell you, and I've shared a lot of them with you, Steph, um, but not all of them by any stretch. The emails that have come in and the social media stuff of people saying thank you or people saying, um, I am already doing this. And like, that's the thing that, that has really touched me is people saying we're already doing, it. and I'm getting pictures of people, uh, you know, putting, Put placing orders for new lock systems. One of the things we added to the end of the article that, that's not necessarily related to four eyes, but it's also super important. Even if if you say you're a technician or say you're a doctor and your your clinic will not make this change and you're going to work on them, and I hope that you will because this has got to be grassroots. People inside the practice have got to want it and push for it and mm-hmm. understand why we do it. Even if you're getting pushback, even if you can't make this change now, you can slap a sticker across the drug box that says you matter here is the, the, the text hotline information I gave you at the beginning of the podcast. You know, mm-hmm. here is the national suicide prevention hotline. Like just slap it on the drug box. Some, anything that might convince that person at the last moment to reach out for help. I mean, that's, that's something basic and simple. And I have gotten so many pictures of stickers mm-hmm. on drug boxes and it, it just, it makes me so happy, but, but people, people reach out for that. And then I've had people who have reached out and said, I wish I had done this or I wish I had known this or I had thought about this. And I, I don't want to get too deep here, but guys, the pain of people who have um, lost colleagues in, in their own practices and think mm-hmm. would have happened. Uh, that pain is deep. And that's also a reason why I said, if, if you're out there and you're feeling uh, feelings of shame or guilt, please don't, you cannot beat yourself up over things that you didn't know at the time, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's definitely help and support for that. And I do not want anyone to feel that way. Um, but but I hear from 
I hear from practice owners who have had that terrible experience of, they think these were my drugs and, mm-hmm. and, and they were used for a purpose I never wanted. And, and that, those have been the, some of the most hard hitting messages that I've gotten. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what resonated with, with me from the practice management perspective is like, look, it can take time. You know, I, I work in, in, uh, um, practice at, we all have budgets. We all have things to consider when we talk about making a major shift. And for some practices, um, you know, particularly we were talking within the uncharted group, there were practice owners who were like, done, I've already ordered a new system. Like I never thought about this. So great. So easy. There are other practices that are like, you know, holy crap, a thousand dollars for a new drug box. Like that's something I'm going to have to plan for and are feeling guilty because they can't enact change right now. And I think the thing that resonated with me when you and I first started talking about this from a management perspective is that there is nothing, um, there, there is a piece of the four eyes save lives message that can be enacted in every single practice today. There's there, there are free and low cost things that you can do to help protect your team and just make them aware of it. Things like sharing um, the articles, talking about it at a staff meeting, like you mentioned, putting up a sticker or a magnet on your drug box. Um, those are really simple things that every single practice can do today. And the other big thing for me from a management perspective is, um, you know, my head went to, okay, so the, and I want to talk a little bit with you about some of the pushback that you've heard and some of the common myths that we've heard um, and feedback since you launched the initiative two weeks ago. Um, some of the common feedback that I heard was cost related, right? Because we're talking about expenses to the to the clinic. That was one of the things that I thought was going to come up first and, and it did. Um, and that's where my brain immediately went into problem solving mode about like, okay, look, we're talking about how do I overcome a financial hurdle? Well, it's, there are so many ways to get creative, um, and ask for help to make this happen. And I think it's, it's about starting the conversation. Right. I think, I think the most productive way to handle this, and we'll get into the specific ways to do it in a second, but the most productive way to handle this is to get the conversation going in your, in your clinic and just say, Mm -hmm. if you're not the boss, you say to the boss, Hey, can we talk about this? Mm -hmm. Can we, can we have a either, you know, just you and I, or can we talk about this with the team and see where people's heads are and see things that we could maybe do in our practice. Mm -hmm. And that's the most productive way to do it. And you get other people involved and you say, guys, we want this to be safe. And you're accomplishing two things. Number one, you're problem solving for your specific practice. Right. And and number two, you're explaining the why. And I don't think that this works if we don't talk about why. If staff think that we are restricting access to these drugs because the DEA wants us to, or it's an opioid safety thing, they are going to stash keys. They are going to do what they can to make their life as easy as possible. And I understand that. If we explain to them that this is a suicide prevention uh, strategy and that we do not know what's going on in the minds of our colleagues and we and and the the health and safety of our team members matters to us more than anything and everybody needs to do their part, I think that's a compelling message and that alters people's behavior because they understand. And the mm-hmm. other part is to say, you know, when we go down this road, if you're not willing to help um, keep everybody safe, then you're going to lose your access to the, to the drug safe. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we have to say, it and we have to mean it. 
And so, so I think that that's why the conversations with the staff are so important as far as the ways to do it. You know, you, you had a, you had a way, uh, right off the bat, if you're comfortable talking about that is ridiculously helpful. And so just the most cost efficient, effective way to go about this. What do you think? Yeah. So it's funny when, when you and I started talking about this first and, and you started explaining where your thoughts were at and, and talking about, um, the, the key fob system, I was like, that's genius. Um, and I said, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about because my, my prior clinic, um, had a system just like that. And there are so, and we have heard a flood of stories start coming in from the Dr. Andy community and from the uncharted community where people are like, yeah, we already have a two key system in our practice. We have a lockbox that has two keys that are required to open it, but in probably, I don't know, just a gut reaction, the majority, I want to say 90%, but you yeah, know, that's whatever, what I some, too. some majority, uh, the same people have both keys, right? So everybody, everybody can get into it. You have a safety system in place and you're bypassing the safety measure every time you use the system. And so I think it's about starting the conversation to say, well, why did we buy a two key system in the first place? And how can we incorporate this into our workflow so that it is, um, it is a doable system. And I think having gone through it myself and experienced that when we, when we first started um, using the two key system and separating it out. So, so we separated it out where doctors had one set of keys and the licensed technicians had the second set of keys and it always took two of us to open the drug locker. And, and, um, most people, I was, I was anticipating most people saying, but, but what if, but what if, and, and there is a lot of that. And, no one knows that better than me because our whole team went through it. Well, but what if we have an after hours euthanasia and the, the, you know, DVM who comes in needs to have access to the drugs or, you know, and, and one of the things that we did was talk about that as a team and say, okay, what are all of the possible things that could go wrong with this system? And we laid them out and then we went about trying to figure out a solution to each one of those problems that didn't involve saying, this is too hard. Screw this. We're just going to give both sets of keys to everybody because that that defeats the the purpose. the The intention was to say we care about each other as a team and um, we want to make sure that we are all safe. And so, how do we how do we go about doing that? And so, I think um, you know, I, I I was I was expecting that, but I loved to see the flood of response from the Dr. Andy community and from the Uncharted community of clinics who were like oh, hey, wait, we already have that in place. We don't have to go out and purchase a fancy new lockbox. We don't have to do anything more than we're already doing, except we have to flip it on its head a little bit. And to me, that's that's such an incredible feeling to think that it's something that's already in place that we can use to help make things um, more difficult in, in that sense, in terms of people getting into the box, but it doesn't have to affect workflow. And I think that the more difficult part was what I was expecting people to hone in on. Well, how do we, you know, what if we have an emergency and we need access to the drugs right away? It doesn't take any more time for two people to stick their key in the lock than it, than it does one person. I mean, you're both standing there. And so I think, um, I think, my suggestion for practices and teams is to say, and and this I think has been your take on it too, is like, look, there are a whole range of options that can be discussed here from putting a magnet or a sticker on your drug box to 
getting a whole new system that relies on new technology, what fits and works for your practice? What can you do today? And then what might you want to do in the future? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I mean, step one, like you said, is helping everyone, everyone understand why. And I think people have two, I think so many practices have two lock lock boxes because the DEA requires them. And so what do they do? They put both <laughs> keys on the same key ring, yes. uh, you know, or keep the keys together, which is completely defeats the purpose. Yeah. Or they leave one unlocked. They leave the top lock unlocked and the bottom yeah. lock is the one that they use. And yes. like, and then that way, if anyone shows up and looks, we have the two lock system that we're required to have. Don't use it, but we have. Uh -huh. And so uh -huh. everybody understanding why is the first part. That basic system, that can absolutely work. And and you guys you guys worked it out well with one group having one key and the other group having another key. Uh, I like the fobs, you know, like the key fobs mm -hmm. where you kind of swipe your little, uh, you can get a little wristband or you can, mm -hmm. it can go on your keychain. But there is a company called Sension and they have one coming out, uh, a lot coming out anytime now. But um, but you can set it so that it takes two different key fobs, and it could be any two people. It could be two doctors or two techs mm -hmm. or two whatever. But bing bing, and you can you can unlock the box, and then you know exactly who unlocked it, when they unlocked it. You can control that. You can mm -hmm. make it so that they can unlock it during the day and not at night. You can do all those things. So you have huge amounts of control with mm -hmm. that, and that that's the system that's gonna gonna cost somewhere around eight hundred dollars when it comes out. And then, and then there's the big daddy stuff. Um, there's a company, there's Cubex. I think there's another mm -hmm. company in the space and that's like the human grade. And these are the biometric ones where two people have to put their thumbs on mm -hmm. and it's a thumb, a thumbprint scan and it will, and it will unlock what you want. So as fancy and as secure and as wonderful as you want to get, but you, it doesn't, it's not a price point thing for most people. Well, and the other thing that, that, um, for me where my head goes in terms of the argument of um, time, like this is going to, this is going to delay the process. It's going to delay our access to the drugs. Well, my first answer is duh. That's, that's the point. The, the, and, and not in a way that is going to hinder our patients' lives necessarily, but it, from a, from a perspective of, the point is there should be some measure of control and doesn't it make sense? And when, when I look to our human colleagues in human medicine, there are human lives at stake all day, every day in an ER, but there's still a system that requires two people to access a controlled substance. Why should it be any different in veterinary medicine? And I, I think it goes back to the... Um, you know, I think it goes back to the James Harriet, all, all creatures, great and small. You have the one doctor who's doing all, being all things to all people. And there are still plenty of our colleagues who are in that environment. And so the solution for them may have to be a different solution. But for the, I think the majority of us, practice has changed so radically from that point in time where there's one person doing all things for all of our all of our patients and all of our clients. And all it takes is a little bit of outside of the box thinking um, to say, yes, that is the point. We care about our colleagues. We care about each other enough to say, how do we, how do we try and slow this process down in a way that is going to potentially interrupt someone's um, intentions, someone's, mm -hmm. you know, um, process, 
but not in a way that is going to significantly hinder our our patients. And that's that's what I love about the FOB system, but also about the key system is like, look, if if um you know, the argument is we we need somebody who's been who's been trained, somebody who's licensed to has access to the drugs. Yeah, that is that is a hundred percent true. But why why does that second person have to be in that same role? I mean, there there are ways that we can go about saying, like like you suggested, well, everybody could have one of the um, keys. You know, if you say, okay, veterinarians have one one code or one key, and the whole rest of your team has the other one, you're still requiring two people to get into the system. And and you can still follow the DEA requirements and your your local and federal law requirements in terms of logging it. And that may require two licensed people. I mean, every state is different, but just getting access to the box, you don't have to have those two bodies standing right there necessarily. So there is almost always two people within seconds of an emergency walking into a clinic in in the treatment room. So why is it any more difficult to, to have two people involved than one? Right. There's there's sort of two pieces of of feedback that that we've gotten since the article came out. Mm-hmm. And they and they go like this. And so we'll take them one at a time. One is this takes too long. Uh mm-hmm. this this slows us down too much. And the other is um this won't work in my practice. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, so let's take let's take the second one first. So this won't work in my practice. I, I, I 100% admit that if you are a solo practitioner or you are working by yourself and you need mm-hmm. control drugs, I don't know how to do a four eye system. Mm-hmm. You know, f- when you only have two eyes in the business, right? You know, like how do we take the person who is an ambulatory veterinarian, um, and they have they have these drugs? Uh, that's a that is a different beast, um, and so. I would say yes, that's correct. I do, I do believe that for right now, at least, I do think that there are some practices that cannot run a four eye system. Um, I so take that, and if you're saying this just won't work, I drive around myself, I do these things. I, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're wrong in in that. I agree with you, Stephanie, 100 that I think the um, the number of practices where that is the case, I think that is steadily decreasing from mm-hmm. James Harriet Day when that used to be 100. percent and um, and I also think there's a lot of people who imagine that they need <clears throat> solo access when maybe they don't. <laughs> and so we are, as a profession, moving more and more and more towards a system where we have emergency hospitals at night and we have clinics that are open during the day. And they open at a certain time and the staff is there and there are multiple technicians there, you know, um, even if the doctors are coming in later. And, mm-hmm. and then they have a closing time and we close. And so I look at my own practice uh, where, where I work, we stopped being a mixed animal practice recently in the last mm-hmm. two years. We, we shut that part of our business down just because, well, for a variety of reasons, but it's just not where we were going. Mm-hmm. And so now we don't have people taking call. We don't have people going out at night. We have regimented business hours. Mm-hmm. When you talk to veterinarians who have gone through that experience, which a lot of us have, what's funny is people will remember the time that they were alone and they were working with a pet. And that will be the one time that pops into their head immediately. They're like, oh, I remember. It was, uh, I had this, this seizuring dog. And they came in. And it was the middle of the night. And I was there. And that's what we uh, saw him. And we did this thing. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, when was that? And they'll go, I, I, 1991. Uh, right. And you go, well, is there any chance now that you would be there in the middle of the night? And they go, oh, no, we don't. That was before the emergency clinic came to town. 
And and I'm not trying to make fun of people because we right. all immediately go to that one scenario that was terrible that mm-hmm. we go, oh, that happened in the past. And so this idea is is out. And mm-hmm. I would say um, for most of us, those scenarios have gotten less and less and less likely. And as, as we regiment our hours and we have on-call clinics or, or emergency clinics and things mm-hmm. like that, I think those have gotten less and less and less likely. And I think at some point we make sacrifices for the safety of our staff that mm-hmm. may slow down our, our treatment. And that brings us back to the first thing that I said people push back against, which is this takes too long. Mm-hmm. And what I would say is, guys, if we were completely unwilling to make any um, safety steps along the way, then we would all have Batman-styled utility belts that mm-hmm. have control drugs and lethal medications and, you know, all of these. We would just carry them. We'd have, like, we'd have, like, holsters that we could whip out <laughs> drugs from, right? Because that's faster. And at some point, we all rationally said, hey— that's not the best idea. We need, yes, we have to now walk to the drug box to get these things, but the ends justify the means when we look holistically, not just at patients, but also at the health of the staff and, and the well-being and the risks. And we said, this is a reasonable compromise. And so what I'm saying now is four eyes is a reasonable compromise in, all, in, in almost all practices, again, there are some, if you're alone, you say someone would have to drive into the clinic. I, I'm not saying that that's what you should do. But if you're working in a practice and you have support staff there, this might add 30 or 60 seconds. And again, I went back, I go back to the point that you made, which I love, is if human hospitals can run this system and they can slow down enough to meet these guidelines I think that we can do that as well. I don't think that that's unrealistic. So that's sort of the, the two the two pushbacks is this won't work in my practice. I would say that may be true for for a small percentage of practices. And again, we're not talking about making this law or any sort of regulation. This is just mm-hmm. us looking at our own practices and trying to do our best. So it may be true for a small percentage of practices. I would say run yourself through the mental exercise of not based on the past, but looking at what my practice is today mm-hmm. do veterinarians need to be able to get to these things by themselves or could we make this work so that two people are required i think the answer for a lot a lot a lot of people is going to be yes and mm-hmm. I, I also so that brings us to a third piece of pushback which is this doesn't work in my practice so it's useless to which i would say that that doesn't make any sense you know um the idea that that four eyes is not perfect for every single practice out there. So it should be dismissed out of hand. I, I, I don't think that makes any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and I agree with that. And I think um, when the article, the article first published and we started hearing a lot of feedback, it's really easy. Um, any, anytime you put yourself out there to immediately focus on the negative and the naysayers, right? And the, there was a, there was a, it was interesting to me to see some of the feedback in there was some that was, that was very loud and very clear about um, in that naysayer mindset of like, well, okay, great. This doesn't address any of the, um, any of the causes. It doesn't address any of the, the problems. It doesn't address student debt. It doesn't address the work-life balance. It doesn't address the crappy pay. And and it was interesting to me because um, I, I felt sad when I first started reading some of that because I was like, oh, okay, it's, it's 
they don't they don't like it or it's a it's a bad idea but the the reality is is that it's still a fantastic idea and they're right it doesn't address those things but i think um one of our colleagues had uh some feedback for us which was that this is a this is a really strong piece of a multimodal approach to suicide prevention. And I think that that really registered for me because we've, we've as a field have, have changed a lot. There's a lot of areas of medicine, right? It goes, goes back to what do we know best is medicine. And there are a lot of pieces of that have, that have changed to a multimodal approach over the last five or 10 years. And now we wouldn't think twice about approaching pain management without looking at it from different perspectives. And I think that this is no different than that, that there are a variety of factors. And as you, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, there are so many groups that have come out within the veterinary space that are working on different facets of the problem. And I think for me, I love that um, we're finally talking about a real world application in terms of how do I disrupt one piece of that with my team? How do I, how do I start the conversation with my team? How do I tell them this is not about me thinking you're stealing drugs. This is not about me, um, you know, wanting to do something because the DEA says I have to, this is about me caring about you guys as human beings and hoping that you would care the same about me. And so what kind of system can we put in place to protect each other here in the practice? Yeah, that I mean that. Yeah, all all of that's true. The the piece about this doesn't address any of the underlying causes, so it's so it's useless or not really helpful. I I and I definitely saw that. Um, the, look, yeah, seatbelts don't address the underlying causes of auto accidents, right? But we put them on, right? So that so that if something goes wrong. We have, we, we are around to do it differently next time we're, you know, or so that we have time to go back and address the underlying problems, you know, that's it. Um, well, you're lessening, you're lessening the risk, right? That's, that's all the seatbelt is about. You're lessening the risk factor because you can't control all of those other pieces and, or you're still trying to control all of those other pieces. And so in the meantime, putting on your seatbelt is something that you can do to lessen the risk. Of course, we're trying to make better tires. We're trying right. to make more responsive cars. We're trying, we're talking about self-driving cars. We've got, you know, my new car has got this thing where it senses obstacles in the road. It right. literally won't let me back into things. It literally <laughs> stops the car. And so- Obviously, the the fight to make a safer automobile continues on, right. but but we but we continue to wear our seatbelts and you know and and that's just a different piece of it. Same same thing. Same thing with surgery. You know, um, s- stopping the bleeding may not address the underlying cause, mm-hmm. but we're all going to stop the bleeding so we can figure out what's going on, so we have more time to work and to fix those things. Like it's, it's the same 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 thing here. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. The other part, I think, just to understand, and this is a uh, just a word for people who are thinking about going back and having these conversations in their clinics, guys. So, some people are going to have a negative reaction to new ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to new ideas, and we've talked about that in other episodes. Mm-hmm. And some people are going to have a negative reaction to them not being able to do what they want to do immediately and independently, mm-hmm. and they're just going to have a negative reaction for that. Let them have a negative reaction. Let them say that this is useless. Let them say it's not going to work. But 
make them hear the idea. And I think some people, they just need time to process. They need time to think about it. They need time to get used to it. And so having that conversation is valuable, even if it's just the first time they hear it. They may need to hear it from you. They may need to hear it from someone else. We had someone reach out recently who had a conversation with her boss about um, about four eyes. And she said, can we talk about this? And they wrote back and said, you're the fifth person who sent me this. Yes, <laughs> we will talk about it. That's so, fantastic. Uh, that's grassroots. That's what we're, that's what, that's what I want. But you know, those people, they may not like it the first time they hear it and they may not like it the second or the third time, but then their friend who they respect says, Hey, we did it because of this thing that I experienced one time. And, and that may be the part that not that tips them over. And so mm-hmm. let people have a negative reaction. That's fine. I'm trying to hear what they say when they say it doesn't under, address the underlying causes. I agree with that. We've got to keep working on underlying causes. But again, that does not mean that we shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So what's what's next? What what comes next? You guys, we the team, we took down the website. We put up the article for a few days, and that was all that ran on the Dr. Annie page. And we put out the results of the survey, and we got a lot of people talking about it. I, I know I was super excited to share it in some of my practice management Um, communities. And before I even got the chance to share, I went into the groups and actually looked at the feed first. And there was already people sharing the article and talking about it. So, so what comes next? Um, So a couple of things. So first things that we're doing right now is I am actively taking feedback from people out in practice who are trying this and people who are talking and because I want to see how they do it in their practice. And this is very flexible. I am Mm -hmm. really interested right now in people who are solo practitioners and what they're doing. And um, I talked to someone who is a solo practitioner, but she made a check-in system with her spouse. And she's mm-hmm. like, hey, uh, when we're at home, I'm going to put these drugs here and this is the system that we're going to have between the two of us. And, and again, it's it's something that may not work for everybody, but it was a way that she was sort of protecting herself and saying, I don't want to immediately have access to these things. Yeah, and so I, I thought that was interesting. There's, um, there's people who are playing around with the idea. Guys, if technology is really amazing, if you can dream it, we can make it happen. There's people who are playing with locks. So it, imagine a two lock system, and one of them is a cell phone lock. And so there are cell phone locks where people can unlock them from anywhere. And mm-hmm. so there are scenarios where you might have a lock box, and it's, um, it's on a camera, and maybe a practice manager or a practice owner can look at the camera. And, um, and, and unlock, you know, and use mm-hmm. their cell phone and unlock the, mm-hmm. the box from home. And again, that I'm not putting that out as a normal thing. I'm just sort of brainstorming. These are some of the things that people are coming up with is yeah. remote unlocking one lock and the other person unlocks their side. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion with, um, with clinics. So say that there's clinics I've heard from clinics that are not emergency clinics, but they do keep pets hospitalized overnight and people say Mm -hmm. i have pets that are hospitalized overnight and they're going to have to have access again that's a perfect example of a time that we might have a cell phone lock but another workaround is uh, people are saying i have hospitalized patients they go ahead and draw up the medications that they might need or they set out those medications that they might need that night in a single lock lock box something Mm -hmm. easy you know Mm -hmm. uh, make it accessible but it, that's not where they live. It's just where they are tonight. Mm-hmm. And so some of the pushback that sort of comes along with that as well is um, 
well, there's always a window of opportunity or there's this one time that we cannot secure these drugs this way. And so we're not going to do this system. Mm-hmm. And I go, guys, go back to what we said before. People make a decision at a certain time and mm-hmm. there is a certain window of high risk for that person. And so the fact that we cannot secure things hundred percent all the time, that doesn't necessarily mean if we're securing it the vast majority of the time, if we don't have an overlap of that high risk window and those drugs being available, we are doing a lot of good mm-hmm. compared to just saying, oh, you know, when the new medications are shipped in, they're not magically in the lockbox. And so people have access. So look, the system doesn't work. I think that's throwing your hands up. And, and so I'm interested in hearing from people how to work around those times. So the first thing right now is gathering feedback from people as they implement the system. And I hope to share those things in the coming months on the site about what systems people are using and how they're securing their drugs and the experiences that they're having. Mm-hmm. I am actively um, had a great call with AHA, the American Animal Hospital Association, uh, to just to talk, talk with it, try to get the ball rolling and mm-hmm. say, hey, guys, I would like to see points for this for accreditation. I'd like to see, you know, uh, four eyes systems, you know, restricted access as something that we're looking at. I've talked to Banfield, I've talked to VCA and just try to get those balls rolling. Just try to start those conversations again. I'm not a part of those organizations. I can't, you know, I can, I can only push so hard from the outside, but mm-hmm. I am committed to continuing to make these conversations happen and, and, and keep pushing. Through. And then the next part after that is we're working hard at uncharted on developing a more complete toolbox system, you know? So yes, we want to, we're going to make it so that these, uh, the stickers for the lockboxes are easy to find. And mm-hmm. so we're developing those and we're going to try to get them out into the world um, mm-hmm. as we can, as soon as we can. And so m- make that happen for sure. But people are right. This doesn't address uh, student debt or work-life balance or burnout. Guys, we need things like like affordable access to therapy for our technicians. Like we need to be working as a profession to make those things happen. I mm-hmm. I think that there's things we need to try to do to re- help veterinarians reduce burnout. And there are things we can do. They're creative solutions, and they take time. But but at least on our team, we're committed to continuing to work on them. And so those are the things that are coming down the line. Mhm, mhm. I love it. I I'm I'm so excited. I mean. I'm so proud to be a part of a team that really cares about our colleagues in, in this way. It's, um, it's something that resonated deeply with me when I first joined our team and, and I'm so proud to be a part of this and I'm really excited to see the, um, excitement and the enthusiasm in terms of problem solving, that's that's been one of the big rewards for me is to see within the communities in vet med that I participate in to start to see the conversation happening about like okay, so this is this is a specific challenge for us in our practice. We, uh, you know, I'm a solo practitioner. Or I have, um, you know, we see after hours emergencies. Are there any other clinics out there who have this? What are you doing about it? And being able to bounce ideas off one of another and start to grow. Um, a catalog of toolbox ideas like you like you suggested and be able to start to to share them out there into the into the space. I'm I'm super excited about that part. Cool. Me too. Thanks for talking this way with me. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I would love to hear from our listeners if you guys have ideas, if there are things that are working for you in your clinic, if you have um, concerns or, or thoughts that you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you at, um, at our email address, right? Yep. Podcast at unchartedvet.com. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for talking about this, Andy. I think it's, I think it's a really important thing and, and I love being a part of um, breaking the silence about it with you. Well, thanks for, yeah, thanks for doing it. And guys, let's just wrap up here again. Again, if you're having thoughts of suicide, um, I know this has been a a deep conversation. Um, I I hope it's been an okay conversation to have. I think it's really important to really talk about, to talk about what we're going to do about it. If you're having thoughts of suicide, if you're uh, if you're struggling, please text seven four one seven four one to connect with a trained crisis counselor right away, or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's one eight hundred two seven three talk. That's one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Guys, uh, thanks again for everything. We'll talk to you soon.